Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you, yes, you, our dear listener, on a journey into the crucible for a weekly or fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of discovery. I am your co-host. Somehow I am still here. I am Zach Armstrong, sometimes sweaty Zach, sometimes just Zach, but always excited about discovery. And I'm here, as always, joined by my pal, from across a moderately sized body of water, Ed Pocock. How are you, Ed? I am doing very, very well, Zach. I'm doing even better the fact that I have got a shot in the arm this week. So I feel like we're one step closer to getting back to uh, playing Keyforge in person and uh, being a real part of this community that we all love. Yes, yes, you and I can finally get back to recording in the same room like we definitely did before uh, before the pandemic started, because we've definitely met in person. We have? Uh, uh, yep, yeah, just, uh, let's just assume, let's just assume we've, yes, we've actually, yes. yeah. Who yeah. could forget? Who could forget? Yep, yep, yeah, yeah, and uh, I'll be sure to edit this out, Ed, but uh, we should, probably shouldn't tell people how long it actually took us to play a game of Keyforge together. That might be a little embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, definitely, um, so that definitely take that We shouldn't let that out. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Note for later. Note for later. Uh, today, we are joined by none other than Karen Brown, who is here to talk about the cost of cards in Keyforge. If that seems a bit abstract, it's well, it's it's that's because it very much is, which is why we're bringing somebody like Karen on so we can tackle this very interesting topic and dig into her brain about it. Uh, Karen is a member of the Final Swindle a Keyforge group, runs the Swindle tournament series and has a PhD in musical theory and composition. And her music can be heard all across the Crucible from the Time Shapers podcast to Keyforge online team events, the Keyforge Premier League and even the Ancient Bay Republic's The Shadow Council. Karen, thank you so much for coming on Call of Discovery today. We're excited you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Of course. Yeah, we, we are excited to dive into it today. But of course, uh, doubly so with someone like Karen, we want to dive into uh, how this person got into Keyforge. Uh, what are they involved in? And of course, uh, Keyforge music. Uh, so we're, de- mm. we're going to take some time to dive into all of that with you, Karen, uh, before we hit up our topic. So uh, our standard first question is, uh, Karen, how did you start to play Keyforge? What was your journey uh, initially into the Crucible? So I actually started playing uh, card games as a Yu-Gi-Oh player. And what was really interesting about Keyforge to me is essentially it accomplished the goals that aesthetically like Yu-Gi-Oh had kind of wanted to. Um, In particular, 
yeah if you watch like um like the animes or stuff when like i did when i was a kid uh the protagonist would always have these kind of horrible cards in his deck but like max them out in some incredible like wombo combo um but then when you actually play the real game of like Yu-Gi-Oh, right, you, you end up in this position where those cards are completely not viable. You have to eliminate them from your deck in order to have like the optimal deck. Um, in, an, in addition, the costs of that were prohibited. So I had heard kind of like randomly through the grapevine about uh, Keyforge. And the main thing was that I could grab a deck for $10. And then as I actually started playing, I realized like I'm really playing with my own deck i'm really trying to max out these bad cards um in addition to my great cards um so the diversity of the game really appealed to me yeah i'd say that has deeply resonated with me too being able to be the best at a deck that's totally not just unique to you but also like mechanically unique i've got so many decks that don't play like any other deck i've ever seen or played myself so i i love that too yeah Totally. And for, for me, um, and, and Karen, keen to get your thoughts on this, I feel like Keyforge captures that excitement uh, that is is present throughout the anime series of Yu-Gi-Oh! of, yeah, I'm playing my Blue-Eyes White Dragon much more than Yu-Gi-Oh! the card game does because of those dynamics you mentioned. Yeah, no, that was it. Like, I kind of, um, I kind of always wanted that feeling of, like, pulling out this thing that nobody else has you know what i mean and like you said it's that excitement it's like you get you play your deck and you're just like you know that you have some like beast that they don't even know about when especially when you're bringing something new Mm -hmm. and uh, especially if it's a combo that relies on otherwise weird cards that isn't a common combo i have uh, a deck i'm playing trying to get to 150 reps with for the podcast and it's not a top tier archon solo deck so it's taken it's taken some extra motivation but it's top secret move that I pull off about once every 50 games is uh, Strange Gizmo, Jargoggle with Nature's Call under it, and then Titan Guardian and Eddie. So I can trigger the destroyed effect on Titan Guardian, draw two cards, trigger the destroyed effect on Jargoggle, play Nature's Call, return all three creatures to my hand, blow up everything else on the board, uh, finishing the Strange Gizmo part, and then play them all again. And it feels like a super secret, like anime Yu-Gi-Oh move where I have like some named sword possessed by, you know, a spirit that I've tamed and I'm getting it to do this crazy thing. Like it's, it's the only card game that's accomplished that for me too. So I, 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 I'm right there with you. It is that Zach. It is that. And (laughs) and we know what adds to this sense of excitement in the anime more than anything else. It is the music. Of course, when you think of Yu-Gi-Oh, you think of the music. So Karen, tell us, um, do you bring your music across to all of the hobbies that you're a part of? What made you start sort of merging your musicality with your Keyforge playing? Um, so there's a there's a few things going on uh, with the game that brought me to it musically. Uh, first of which is that I, uh, to kind of lead in from the other question, the first competitive event I played was the Keyforge online team event. Um, and essentially i felt a little bit like not indebted but that's not right the way word but i felt very thankful to them for kind of introducing me to the competitive scene of keyforge like i didn't really know how competitive it could get and how interesting it could get right and i was in a conversation with some of their admins and everything and i was just like hey you know i can write you guys like an intro 
just to, you know, as kind of a thanks. So I did the, um, the first one for them, like just kind of for free is like a thank you. And that was a piece I centered around the house logos. And when I actually went to write it, I found that the game had like kind of an unbelievably deep lore. And in addition, these, um, uh, themes that are very kind of unexpected. So, I mean, I'll give you an example with the logos piece, right? So the piece that I wrote is about the card, Dr. Escoterra. And if you look at that card in combination with like the lore of the game, you're looking at um, humans who have slowly replaced their bodies with like mechanical pieces, right? And like over the course of time, they become more and more augmented. And some of the oldest people in the logos, they say in um, even on, I, I think it was just like the introductory lore book is um, that... Uh, that we don't really know if they were originally robots or originally humans, right? Like we don't really like have yeah. access to that information, which is like incredibly interesting to me as a composer that it has this deep lore. Uh, so the piece that I wrote ended up being this kind of introduction to the like the backstory of Dr. Dr. Escoterra. So I use like audio from the first television broadcast ever in it. And then I'm like mixing that in with kind of like an increasingly technological music as that kind of swarms around the character. Um, in, in particular, I'm interested in the intersection of like the way that we think about logos developing, as I just described, uh, as in and that intersection of that with like what we call a uh, cyborg feminism, which is essentially the kind of idea that we can augment our bodies to, you know, fit more and more into our identities. So you um there's there's like a lot there and you can tell that there's a lot of borderline subversive writing uh in the creation of these characters it's awesome like <laughs> yeah yeah i i agree the thing that got me aware that the lore goes in that kind of a direction was a piece centered on doom of the martyr the the rare card from uh call of the archons who was uh I think it's the the short fiction piece Squire Doom at the Gate of Hope, um, and she challenges uh, the restrictive nature of Sanctum letting people in because it's this there's a horde of monsters coming up across these refugees, and she challenges the fact that they're not even letting these people in right now who aren't being deemed worthy, and she goes and and sacrifices herself to save all the people, um, and it's it's a story about refugees and hard decisions and and. Uh, you know, it, Sanctum, at least I don't know if there's a stand in for anything, but you can certainly think of discussions people have had about like, like, how can we help people and and let them in? And it's uh, yeah, I did not expect that from a card game that has a setting like the Crucible, which seems to be of a bit of a kitchen sink setting, but it's a deeper kitchen sink than it has any right to be. <laughs> well, you know, um, like I talked to this, um, I, I just uh, finished a conversation with my friends. I, did, I didn't think I'd be going in this direction, but um, he finished. Um, he finished reading like the four great classics of Chinese literature, and I'm blanking on the names of them right now. Uh, but uh, the last of which has like the Monkey King, and and it has a story in it where there's um there's this goldfish that one of the gods like loses essentially, and then that goldfish ends up like on planet Earth as a monster, essentially, right? Because it like gets away from the realm of gods and everything mm. and becomes this whole chaotic force around which an entire tale is spun. And 
you know, we were having this conversation and this kind of like chaotic and like borderline, like polytheistic and just like all these different influences coming in from, from different directions at the same time creates a kind of chaos that resonates more with reality than when we try to create a structured story. Oh goodness. And that, and that's kind of like the crucible. Is that, is that where that's going? No, and that's exactly like, that's exactly the way I see it. Right. It's like they've created a framework in which many people can tell their own stories. And like, I see like, for example, um, like Star Alliance was such an interesting kind of counterbalance to the way that you were talking about how Sanctum works, right? This kind of like radically inclusive house and, um, or kind of, yeah, I mean, just like the, the possible intersections between all the houses, just like we have an infinite number of decks that can be kind of spun out from this finite creation of cards. We have an infinite amount of stories that can be told based on this kind of like chaotic universe, right? Because it's just in, as big and messy as the real world. Yeah, and there's a similarity there as well with uh, you know the the archons being these kind of semi gods walking on on the crucible with everyone else in in this kind of messy jungle. Let's put it that way. Um, and yeah, Star Alliance are probably a good example there of it is a really inclusive place as well. Everyone can see themselves reflected in some of the different houses and some of the different cast of characters that lay within those houses on the crucible oh oh, yeah the the other the other thing i was going to say in response to uh, what ed was saying is that i have found undoubtedly even among people that do not play the game if you show them a couple decks and a couple artworks and the houses and ask them what house they would be in they have like a finite answer like Mm, fascinating People identify very strongly with these houses for whatever reason, like aesthetically. And Karen, which house do you aesthetically, uh, which house resonates with you? Sorian, 100%. Really? Um, yes. Awesome. Um, and wh- why, why is that? I'm actually very interested in that. That's awesome. <laughs> so um, there's a, uh, yeah, so again, like a complicated answer. Uh, to, but essentially, I'm interested in they have two things going on at once um, and uh, which I resonate with super heavily as an opera composer. (laughs) Um, But essentially you have these like technological elements within the house, right? So like in the lore book, they even talk about them like beating back the Martians with, with technology that looks like spears, right? So like there's like like spears and like kind of Greco Roman weapons, but they're super technological. So there's this simultaneous interest in kind of, working within the structure of the classical and like the magical but also like that intersecting with the technological so if you look at um kind of the the opera pieces that i've been doing i may like use a classical structure um i'm i'm sorry for the noise in the background um if you're looking at the opera pieces that i'm doing uh, i may use a classical structure but i may kind of embed a computer like a computerized framework kind of over that um, and the Saurian is like merging all that stuff, the magic with the technological, the dinosaurs somehow with <laughs> with the futuristic. Um, it's a super chaotic house. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, that is a, a really fascinating angle that um, I, I enjoy seeing. It is it, it points out because I don't want to call it a juxtaposition in the design. I want it. I think it is a combination that 
makes us think about ourselves because we might initially see it as a juxtaposition, right? Yeah. Um, like like something new and technological, but being in that old traditional form. Because my mind is also thrown to um, you know over to the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, the Wakandans often have a similar thing where they have some of the most advanced technology, especially for their kind of more regular foot soldiers. Um, and it's uh, you know it's it's triggered by you know them bringing a cloak up across their arm, and then they have this high tech force field that that goes up it's a, a similar a similar approach that makes you go oh maybe i assume something i shouldn't have <laughs> right you know yeah no and that that's like what that is is the merging of the technological and the humanistic right like i'm very interested in preserving both uh which i don't think we do a great job of in the academia of this country with a current like de-emphasis of the humanities but there's a reason why you may uh, kind of like you said, like bringing up a cloak or something to trigger a very much more technological process is actually allowing the human to engage with that technology in a way that is more like visceral and immediate, which is going to allow you to better use it mm. uh, in the long run. So, and and that juxtaposition, which is is the kind of the first instinct, almost kind of makes sense with that Roman Roman tradition, doesn't it? Because the Romans being very ahead of their their time um and uh ancient dinosaurs being ancient but also the idea of romans wielding modern technology uh just kind of makes sense yeah and then you can look at the uh mass mutation set you see like this fascinating like decline of the saurians where they're you know you see like hedonistic intent and things like that where they're suddenly cloaking themselves in amber and uh they're a far more kind of static right they're not as kind of aggressive and conquering as they are in the in the world's collide set so you're able to kind of tell the story of the kind of establishment decline of this empire i'm very curious where it goes in dark tidings for that reason arrogance breeds complacency too much amber (laughs) i i think i think we have a uh small version the kind of poster child for that tale at least what came to mind when you said that karen was uh uh senator shricks turning into citizen shricks going from that position of power to you know a position of normalcy um and at the very least uh, at the very least that is you know uh a move that shricks does not enjoy even the flavor text says everything changed after they lost you know the election um yeah wow console no more um but we can console ourselves <laughs> with a wonderful conversation around resource costs in card games oh, yeah. and that is potentially my best segue of all time <laughs> wow wow that was uh i mean i was ready for something lovely to come out of a thoughtful pause but that was uh that was something else <laughs> My goodness oh goodness i am so excited about talking about this though seriously because resources are an yeah a good resource is an unseen resource and we don't notice i think how much resources impact everything we love about keyforge which is why i am excited to be talking uh, with you both around this and tackling this uh, fascinating fascinating topic but um i think we've got to put this in context and for that we've got to go back to the beginning which means we've got to mention some of those other unwashed card games that uh, we don't like <laughs> to talk about um well some of them we like to talk about <laughs> yeah good point i mean some we've already we very been... much like to talk about <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> Arkham Horror, anyone? Video game out this week, by the way. Oh, that's right. From uh, from Asmodee Digital. So, yep. you know, maybe their Ooh. workload has opened up. Who knows? Let's not even let's not even get our hopes up. Oh, no, let's get our hopes up because <laughs> Arkham's got a card game. Lord of the Rings got sorry. Arkham's got a video game. Lord of the Rings has got a video game. So Keyforge, it has to be on the menu. It has to be on the menu. And uh, we're going to be making some Archons happy. So we can be providing a little something for everyone. I'll be the cynic, and Ed, you can have hope. That way, whatever way our listeners are leaning, they've got someone. Uh, <laughs> they've got someone on their vibe here. <laughs> Zach, without hope, the Death Star would still be a thing. Sure, rebellions are built on it, or whatever. So, um, anyways, so we're gonna we're gonna go over how resources have been structured in a few card games, uh, just real quick for. Because uh, Keyforge, as uh, you may know, and it was illuminated on even more by Richard in his um, uh, interview with us, which I still can't believe happened. Uh, Keyforge's structure was uh, as many great pieces of art or development is as a reaction to something else. Um, and of course, we're going back to uh, let me check my notes here. Oh, yes. Older games of Richard Garfield's to see where everything started. So you might know in things like Magic the Gathering or the Pokemon trading card game, resources there's like an entire card just dedicated to a resource and of course they iterate on that and make it a little more complicated but lands and magic the gathering energy cards in the pokemon trading card game you've got to draw them from your deck attach them or put them down onto your board in some way and then you can use them so they're they're dependent on drawing them from the deck and that all that card does is you know provide you the ability to to do something there absolutely and there's a role of luck here as well isn't there because if you, I think it's called getting mana screwed in Magic. If you yes. don't draw your lands, you can do absolutely everything right. But if you don't draw your lands, then you can have issues. And also, the most valuable lands in the game are very valuable cards indeed because they are required across all decks. So this definitely comes with a few caveats. And to quote my partner when she first played Magic the Gathering, why is this a thing? And this, this is, yeah... Just why yes. is this a thing? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was the first one, so we can we can give it a pretty wide berth as far as uh, as far as our, our judgment on the design is concerned. And how do, absolutely because at the time it was a uh, complete overhaul of anything that had been done before. But how was this evolved upon? Uh, so, like you said, people didn't like um, having an uneven distribution of of that resource. So we saw a couple games like Hearthstone and Rune Terra actually give you uh just take all those resources out of the deck and it's just each turn you have one more total resource to spend so you have one resource two resource three resource four resource uh going up one per turn of course with some variations and, and tricks they play there uh but they put you on an automatic curve all players on the same automatic curve uh a structure in which the you know you uh, the game lets you play bigger and bigger things as you go along. So uh, one way to add a little bit of consistency into a card game there. Um, and then we move on to things like a pool of resources. And the one here that I'm familiar with is Arkham Horror, where you have literally their called resources. You start off with five, you get one extra return, which is interesting because we've got departure here from the whole you start off powerful as it is and and then and uh, and then you get even you get even more powerful as you have more resources that enable you to do different things so rather than ramping up from from nothing 
you start off with a bit of a burst. You can put a few things in play. Um, and I believe this was also a thing for, for Netrunner and Star Wars Destiny. But Zach, you are far better prepared to speak about that than I am. <laughs> yes, uh, for the purposes of context, they're uh, very similar. You start off with a handful. You try to make more with economy cards. Um, and uh, a card has a cost when you play it that you pay in those resources, um, which, uh, yeah, is just a, a restriction on getting those into play. Uh, but what was uh, what was the one other way Ed, that uh, we've seen? Um, and there may be others. I acknowledge that there may be others. I have did not research the Dune card game or many other esoteric things that you may have seen on TTR's card game Necromancy. Uh, so there may be other systems as well. But uh, what's the other system we have We have in our notes here? Indeed, indeed. And I think this is a almost an evolution of the resources system overall, that card games are increasingly trying to make their resources silent, to make it a part of the game that you don't have to deal with separately to everything else. We see this with Keyforge, and we're going to be talking about that shortly. But we also see this with games like Marvel Champions, where you draw up to a full hand of cards every turn. It makes you feel powerful. It makes you feel like a hero. And but you have difficult decisions to make as a hero, of course. And so you are forced to choose between spending those cards as resources or playing those cards. And you're constantly stuck. You can't do everything you want to do. You have to maybe sacrifice the cat up the tree to save the city uh, or something like that every single turn, which um, is, of course, all in a hero's day, day's work. But I think the probably the best um, best example that I'm aware of that does this is Keyforge, which is uh, a game that I, I think if, if if anyone's listening and they haven't played it, they might they might enjoy playing it. Um, so we're, we're going to dive into that very shortly. But first of all, um, I think it's crucial that we ask Karen. Karen, what is what is the quintessential thing about resources that you find most interesting? Well, I mean, to kind of like briefly outline my thoughts on cost to, to maybe start the conversation is um you know I, I basically think that like cost as you've said is created to enforce a resource system within the game that's in keyforge is silent uh the cost of the card in keyforge is for that reason uh you could you could see it as one thing uh you can play a card uh from a house because we're divided into three houses of 12 cards uh, once you play a card, that makes you less likely to draw from the same house later. Um, so if we think about like hand manipulation and kind of like as we go through a game, um, you, you can think about your kind of three pools of 12 cards. And obviously you can recycle your deck. But if we think about the simplest like dumb version of Keyforge, right, where it's like my goal, like we all have like both of us have blue uh, green and yellow cards and our goal is to just play them as quickly as possible and whoever gets the end of their deck first wins mm. the, that in in and of itself is actually not a very simple thing you don't just play the most right because you're trying to optimize your hands to get to the most like four card hands so you if i play like three yellow and then i have two yellow in my hand i might play my two yellow knowing that i'm gonna get you know five blue later uh, and the, if you kind of work out the math of that, as I've worked with my teammate, uh, Simon, who goes by uh, Zeramis Online, um, if you kind of work out the math of that, it compensates for the uh, extra card that you would have drawn in the past, right? So 
uh, in Keyforge, we're constantly managing and manipulating that resource for uh, later. Um, and then cost for that reason can come in a second form where there are cards that limit that optimal flow, right? Um, because if I need to hold a card, like a pandemonium or like a gateway, uh, it's actually inhibiting the optimal flow of cards, which is actually costing me resource uh, in this very kind of sneaky way. Uh, there's also, of course, cards that can only uh, kind of be useful when certain conditionals are achieved. So uh, pandemonium is one I, answer, I said. Red alert is a big one for me. Uh, mimicry, you have to wait for the, uh, the opponent's discard to be there. And I do, I do have others. Um, and then finally, you have this third category where it's literally built into the card. So if you think about like Fertility Chant, Fuzzy Gruen, uh, it's literally just in the card, right? Uh, your opponent receives an Amber when you play it. Yeah, and that's something that in my uh, trying to just, you know, improve it, improve it the game, because that's something I, I enjoy uh, crafting a hand by deciding, I okay, I've got three or four of this house, but I've got two of this house. And my past few turns were of the same house I have the two cards of. So I know if I get rid of those because I'm less likely to draw into more of those and I'm more likely to draw into the other house I already have four of, uh, I can actually take, you know, take a shorter turn when I'm just playing two maybe low impact cards and not doing much because I know that's going to set me up to be able to dump four or five of this other house out at once, which means I'm increasing my chances. I'm going to be able to go through that many cards per turn, uh, you know, within a couple of turns as I, as I continue to cycle my deck. So I think, I think all the very intelligent discussion, I think that is what <laughs> I think, uh, what I have learned is like reflected in, in that discussion there of, um, of setting yourself up to draw more cards later, uh, with just the, the math of, you know, 12 cards of, of three different houses. Is that, is that about right? Smart people I'm on the call with. <laughs> Um, if I'm, if I may be so bold as to answer to that call, but, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that that, that's quite correct. So, um, the, the place that I learned a lot of the hand shaping that I was thinking about, like one with my discussions with Zaranus, which is true, but, um, also in my discussions with Aurora, who's kind of the, the household expert on like the world expert on this, uh, library access time traveler decks mm -hmm. where, when you have this, I think library access is a wonderful discussion of cost, right? Because like you can take that chain forever if it gives you your crazy combo at the end of the game, right? Um, so the whole game, you're trying to set up the situation where you have library access and like only blue cards left in your hand and deck somehow, right? And um, when you actually do uh, create that situation, the payoff is great because then you were you only have two houses left basically in your hand or deck after you do that whole combo, uh, which then shows you that hidden resource in the game. Like you see how much more crazy the deck is when you only have two houses left. Oh wow, that's a that's actually a great illustration. I hadn't even thought of was library access. Yeah, getting all the blue cards basically out of the way by playing them, so you are down to just two. So that's kind of the the ad nauseum uh practical practical way to show that okay that's very cool you're stacking the deck basically you're stacking the deck in a legitimate fashion which is fascinating and then with a the library access combo there's a really interesting um 
so like when you play a time traveler during a library access turn, you are drawing three cards, which means you're plus two on the card. Uh, if you play a wild wormhole, you're plus one on that card. Um, so when you finish a combo, if you have like a wild, like, uh, like Bazi Bistoth, which is a very interesting deck, has two wild wormholes, a time traveler, and a library access. So it's going plus one on the wormholes, plus two on the uh, time traveler, and then it's sitting there with a much larger hand made of only two houses. My deck, uh, Crabtree, um, it's, it's the same kind of concept of library access time traveler combo, but it ends with a scrambler storm. So you freeze their, uh, and a fogify, so you freeze their ability to fight, they can't play action cards. Uh, so all they can really do is reap and put out creatures. And then you're sitting there with full moon, two dust pixies, and a flaxia, and then you vip that, and then you vip your disc down, and suddenly your board is filled. Um, it's it's really fascinating when you see a case of that cost removed. And to to a lesser extent, archive can be an instrument by which to to kind of organize your deck in a more favorable way to yourself later on in the game as well. I suppose um, if you're taking out certain cards from a certain house in an efficient manner then you may be able to see the cards you want at a certain time again a less effective way of doing it but still a way of of doing that manipulating those resources yeah no this is why i'm convinced that um i'm sure there are decks out there and somebody will be like oh i have it but um we haven't really seen the archivist broken yet Mm mm-hmm I am just convinced that that is the most broken card in Keyforge if you have a Mind Over Matter deck mm. or some consistent way to archive that thing uh, because you're going to be able to start basically playing one house at a time while using an auto-encoder. It is potentially the most the most broken deck of Keyforge that I can like think of in my head involves that kind of thing. And, and Keyforge has a lot of these swingy cards, doesn't it? A lot of power cards whether it be board wipes, kind of scaling amber control, um, stealing, or some of these grand plays like the the archivist might set up. Do we think that, uh, we? yeah, I mean, we've spoken in previous episodes about the fact that being a, a non-constructed format means Keyforge can have a lot more fun in this space than, than those constructed games because it doesn't have to worry about meta decks and everyone putting the same things in their decks. But do we also think that to an extent the way that resources work in Keyforge also enables Keyforge to print cards that just wouldn't be possible otherwise? Oh yeah, definitely, right? I mean, Time Traveler is like, not to bring it back to Yu-Gi-Oh from the beginning, but Time Traveler is Pot of Greed, which is like the first banned card in Yu-Gi-Oh. Because Pot of Greed, for those that don't know, it literally just says draw two cards. It's a plus one on a card and it was too generic. Um... And any logo stack would be make, made better by adding a time traveler, basically. Um, any deck with a Martian generosity, everybody would add the key abduction. Like, you know, like it kind of goes without saying, right? Yeah, and it's Pot of Greed with legs as well. It's, oh, yeah, it's got course. a body. <laughs> oh, and it shuffles itself back in the deck, yeah. and you can play it twice. <laughs> Uh-oh. right yeah the card that goes and searches for it <laughs> yeah. when you talk about it like that you think oh my goodness were the designers mad or were they genius and i think we know that they were probably both mad and genius to print it and uh and it worked out really well and um is a fascinating card that we talk about but we don't talk about it with 
you know, there's no angst here. We're not angry that it was printed. We think it's a brilliant thing that highlights, you know, the the kind of uniqueness of this game. So, my goodness, we so we have a lot of different kinds of costs in Keyforge, right? And they're all they're all abstracted. We've talked about we've got three different houses um, in a single deck, twelve cards each. You can manipulate how that works. You can do that with cards. You can do that with what houses you're playing. Um, and then we talked about conditions, right? So. Uh, something needing a target or an optimal kind of board state to to actually work. Thinking like Mimic Gel uh, or Ronnie were two examples that that had Karen had had sent over. Um, how do so? How do all of these come together in Keyforge? Like, what what experience do all these abstract costs in create when they come together in Keyforge? Like, like what what makes Keyforge different and special because of all of this headiness and and difficulty in actually figuring out exactly what a cost is. Sure. So the the cost that we haven't mentioned, which we I mean we we alluded to in the in the previous discussion, but the cost that we haven't mentioned is that you don't construct your own deck, and um, you're only going to have so many good cards in a deck. Or like you you can talk to people whose best you know ninety SAS deck also has a bad penny, and the the sheer kind of randomness of the game will kind of make those. It like it is its own cost essentially that you're paying as your deck is constructed. It can only be so good, or like your resources will only be so optimally aligned, or at least will be very unlikely to be optimally aligned. So I think that the chaos of just the deck construction in combo with the costs of the cards themselves have a lot of like interesting intersections, basically, uh, from my view. That's a fascinating point. That's a fascinating point. So what you're saying is that part of the resource constraints on the game itself come from the that deck building that algorithm and constraints uh that mean that even the best decks are somewhat shackled by uh some of their weaker cards yeah a, a perfect example that i can think of is um uh Genka decks if you uh so i i built uh an algorithm in um what's the name uh, crucible tracker which is the uh they have a deck rating system where you can you know rate different cards to find optimal combos this that and the other thing right and uh you're setting up so you're setting up your own custom algorithm to find like the best let's say Genka deck and you're like okay well i'm going to assign you know 10 points if i can get double gen double key abduction you know like something absurd right and then you're like, oh, well, I need to get to it fast, so I'll do my logos, right? And so you set up your logos perfectly. You have your Mars, and you find these decks, and they have no amber control at all, like mm. zero <laughs> amber control. And sure, and sure. and then and because we can only have three houses at a time, uh, the resources in the game are out allocated unequally between the houses, right? So it's like if I want to go as fast as humanly possible, I will not be able to play defense. If I want to play defense all the way i need like shadows and discs like i want to disrupt and i want to do that and then i won't have speed um and the game is just kind of brilliantly constructed in such a way that you couldn't possibly have all of them but i do think in the current meta especially actually uh, especially in early early um keyforge metas when we talk about disc logo shadows decks reign supreme like forever when coda was there 
Um, and the reason is you have the speed and you have the amber control. Like you're playing defense and offense. It's the closest we could come to constructing something that did all those things. Yeah, and to a certain extent there, we're not shackled by the same things that constructed games are where you generally have aggro decks, mid-range decks, and control decks. Um, certainly, you know, the the kind of go-wide, small uh, aggro decks that you see or, or the mid-range decks that you see in constructed games. Here, we can have a board full of Sanctum and Sarian knights that are huge and massive. Um, it's just completely completely different. And, uh, and the resource costs associated with those cards are, of course, inexorably tied to that because the bigger cards in a constructed game might cost more to play whereas all cards whether yeah unless it's a Khalifi dragon or you've got other arbitrary constraints on things like alpha or omega um yeah they're all the same cost yeah i think that that is one of the things that paying that cost of a you know algorithmically constructed deck that a computer put together by a uh, you know, albeit complicated set of rules, but they, they, the computer is not putting it together. Is like, oh, I'm going to make a good deck. I'm going to make a bad deck. The computer is saying, okay, X chance of this card, Y chance of this card. And the other thing that does is that does allow us to have, like you said, Ed, the big fun creatures. Like if I have fun with a huge battle line and creatures with tons of power, I can do that. Uh, one, because we can't construct a deck in a way where we can completely abuse that. And two, um, gosh, just in the design of the game and what's at what rarities, there are board wipes. And if you commit something to the board, you've got a risk of it just blowing up. Uh, board wipes was one thing I wanted to talk about, actually. Um, and, you know, I, I was talking about that kind of like uh, basic, you know, I brought up earlier in the episode, the um, kind of like most basic stupid version of Keyforge, which is blank cards when we're trying to get through our decks. And uh, one thing that I've noted is that, you know, if you start with, let's say I start with a six card hand of Logos, if we were playing a game without huge swingy cards, huge board wipes, there would be virtually no way to compensate for that initial advantage, mm. right? And um, the swingy cards that, that we associate with Keyforge, especially, like I said, like in that early kind of Coda meta, uh, uh, it's in that early Coda meta, they're there to kind of prevent high rolls or like prevent the game being uh, dominated by high roll early hands. And I think that that's been managed really, really nicely in Keyforge. So, you know, like you said, you've committed something. The part of the cost that you're putting down is like you've committed these things to the board, which can be instantly zapped away from you, especially creatures uh, can just be completely zapped away. And then you're less likely to draw that house and, and you've lost all this resource, essentially. Absolutely. But also things like ward and things like putting chains on good board wipes means that it's a little bit more balanced and it makes those go-wide decks, big board decks, viable. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think in the in the current meta, which I was talking to Zach about prior to episode, is um, there's a lot of like creature swarm decks with high pips on the creatures running around. Uh, one thing that enables this is DAV, which we haven't talked about, right? Oh. Because uh, it's going to allow you to move fast across houses, uh, which is going to limit uh, some of like the constraints that we were talking about. Yeah. Um, hmm. But we're we're saying like there isn't currently 
a board wipe good enough to counter that essentially, right? Gateway, I'm taking three chains. The cost is actually more than I can pay, which is why we're seeing a hit to a lot of our good Coda decks. It's like, okay, well, I played my gateway. Okay, here's eight more creatures. And it's like, crap, now I have three chains and you still have eight creatures. Um, <laughs> and uh, so like that, that's a that's a huge problem. Unlock gateway, we're ending the turn. I'm, I'm finding like right now in the meta, unlock gateway is better because I'm not paying my chains. Um, but it, it's it's a real issue where we don't have Right now, we don't have a board clear of sufficient quality. And what I would suggest for the the game, or like my theory crafted card to solve this out of the top of my head was like some kind of scaling creature control. Something along the lines of like, if my opponent has 10 more creatures than me, I can forge a key at no cost. Mm, yeah. Or like so- something like that. Like we need something that crazy. Ooh, um, that's great. Designers take note. I love that. But but we, we, we do have something like that in the form of the Star Alliance card that has temporarily escaped my... Red Alert. Red Alert, indeed. I love the design of that card um, because of how it, how it scales. And uh, it's a real balancer as a card. It's a feel-good card, I think, for that reason. But you make a good point, Karen. I, I think perhaps we do need something more potent for the ball control. Perhaps something like the tide washing all those creatures away. Uh, indeed. Yeah, when they're all exhausted, I mean, you still get the pips, but uh, yeah, I guess the trick would be repeated exhaustion that is at a lower cost to you. My goodness. <laughs> wow. We shall see. We shall. We shall. Karen, it's been absolutely wonderful to have you on the podcast, and we do duly hope that you will come back next week for a deck discovery episode. Um, so you can skippy time hog ahead a week, listener, and listen to that one. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Um, Karen, where can our listeners find you? You you can find um, the final swindle is just at thefinalswindle.com. and uh, my. My personal website is a Wix site right now, which has a rather long name, but uh, I can link it at the end of the episode. Yes, or, that's, uh, that's what show physically. notes are for. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I so I do have my website, which will be in the description there, and uh, I've got some music linked there. Uh, I'd be very appreciative if you check it out. And I second that our listeners should check it out, because if you've heard any of Karen's music, it is quite something and adds to that ambience that we all already have in our heads about the Crucible. Um, but no more for the Crucible uh, and for Call of Discovery. If you are enjoying Call of Discovery, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. If you are new to Keyforge, please do visit the new player guide on Archon Arcana the Keyforge wiki linked below to get started on your own unique journey into this fabulous game. If you're looking to support us in a monetary fashion, please do visit our Patreon, also linked below, where you can sign up to support us on a monthly basis and enjoy rewards like our exclusive Discord, where we get really most of the topics and questions that we ask guests and we speak of in the show. Let us also know what you'd like to see more of and less of in future shows by interacting with us across all the different social medias on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, or you can always send us an email at podcast at 
Com. But most importantly, if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, then please do help them to discover it. Have you answered the call of discovery? Wonderful Keyforge Licky Wiki, Licky, Licky Wiki. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> oh dear, um, that was unfortunate. <laughs> Licky Keyforge. Um, right. 